Hello, and welcome back to All You Need to Know About European History. My name is Nick Whitney, and this is episode four, which centres on the Crusades. In the last episode, we described a continent recovering its footing after the Dark Ages and beginning to develop some sense of collective identity as Western Christendom. Despite the repeated conflicts between the two supposed leaders of this revival, Pope and Holy Roman Emperor, in the crusading movement of the 12th and 13th centuries, an inspired but deeply flawed endeavour to recover the Holy Land from the infidel, that sense of collective identity found expression in collective action. The First Crusade was launched in response to an appeal for help to the Pope from the Byzantine Emperor Alexius whose territories, including the Holy Land, were rapidly falling to the Seljuk Turks. The Seljuks, who had emerged, who didn't, from the Central Asian steppes and had overwhelmed the Arab Caliphate based in Baghdad, then turned their attention to the Byzantine Empire and smashed their forces at Manzikert in the far east of today's Turkey. They were soon across Anatolia and at the gates of Constantinople. On the European side, the Bulgars took their chance to revolt and established their second empire in the Balkans. The Byzantines were in desperate straits. In response, Pope Urban II summoned a church council at Clermont in the Auvergne in 1095. Bishops and prelates assembled from across Europe to listen to the Pope's appeal for Western Christendom, to mobilise in aid of their brothers in the East, and to recover Jerusalem from the infidel. Rich and poor alike must take up the cross. God would lead the way. Deeply moved, the Pope's audience roared their support. Deus la volt! God wills it. Urban had prepared the ground with a number of the leading princes. Not the Holy Roman Emperor, with whom he was currently in dispute, nor yet the King of France, whom he was busy excommunicating for adultery. But Raymond, Count of Toulouse, was quick to join the cause. The Pope recognised him as joint leader of the enterprise, along with his own legate, the Bishop of Le Puy. A slew of other second-order lords then declared their adherence, from the French king's brother to Godfrey of Bouillon, a vassal of the emperor, to the Norman Prince of Taranto in the south of Italy. The churchmen dispersed from Clermont to preach the crusade across the continent, and a huge wave of enthusiasm for the enterprise was further stoked by populist preachers like the donkey-riding Peter the Hermit. The promise of remission of sins and eternal salvation was a powerful lure to the medieval mind. Pilgrimage to the Holy Land had long been recognised as a religious duty, but difficult and dangerous to undertake. Now, that opportunity was being widely offered and urged, in the context of a glorious adventure that promised loot as well as salvation, and relief from the tedium and hardships of everyday life. Most British schoolchildren acquire a highly romanticised view of the Crusades, centred on the figures of Richard the Lionheart and his Arab, actually Kurdish, opponent Saladin, chivalrously contesting possession of the Holy Land during the Third Crusade. Difference did not dim their mutual admiration. Richard might smash mighty beams with his sword, but Saladin had this neat trick of slicing silk scarves in mid-air with his razor-sharp scimitar. 
Sadly, the Crusades were no more costly than the rest of medieval warfare. The religious fervour which brought together the People's Crusade, a rabble inspired by the preaching of Peter the Hermit and preceding the official forces of the First Crusade, was largely slaked by pogroms of Jews in the Rhineland before they even set off. And when the soldiers of Christ recovered Jerusalem in 1099, after almost half a millennium of Muslim control, they celebrated by massacring its inhabitants. And they were equally happy to do the same for their fellow Christians in Constantinople, when that great city fell into their hands a century later. The Muslims behaved little better, and during the couple of centuries when Frankish forces were present in the Levant, were as ready to cooperate with crusaders to do down their local rivals, as were different Frankish leaders to work against each other. Nonetheless, for all the atrocity that accompanied the heroism, the mix of base and more noble motivation, and the sheer ineptitude that flowed from invariably divided command, the history of the first three crusades is not wholly unrecognisable in the romantic legend. In brief, they played out as follows. The forces of the First Crusade sorted themselves into three or four different expeditions for the journey across Europe to rendezvous at Constantinople in 1097. Here the Emperor Alexius welcomed and supplied them, but took care not to let them within the city walls, and extracted an oath from the main leaders that whatever territories they liberated from the Seljuks would be handed back to him. The crusading army then progressed across Anatolia to Antioch, which they took after a long siege, before finding themselves besieged in turn. The happy discovery of the Holy Lance buried beneath the floor of the cathedral revived morale and restored the crusade's momentum. And in July 1099, the forces of Godfrey of Bouillon broke into Jerusalem. Mindful of his oath to Alexius, Godfrey hesitated to make himself king. His brother Baldwin, who had left the crusade at Antioch to set up a separate principality at Edessa in northern Syria, had no such scruple, and was crowned the first king of Jerusalem on Christmas Day 1100. Alexius fared no better in relation to Antioch, where the Norman Bohemond, a son inevitably of Robert Guiscard, made himself count. Other leading crusaders headed home, leaving the new kingdom hopelessly under-garrisoned, but for the nascent military orders, Knights Templar and so on, of whom more later. The Second Crusade was sparked by the recapture of Edessa by the Muslims in 1144. Responding to the preaching of Bernard de Clairvaux, King Louis VII of France and the Holy Roman Emperor Conrad III both decided to step up as joint leaders. After the usual preliminary pogroms in Europe and the incidental capture of Lisbon from the Moors by a passing English fleet, the crusade was most noticeable for the marital bust-up between Louis and his queen, Eleanor of Aquitaine, in Antioch. Here we must digress for a moment to say something about this remarkable woman. Nothing is known of her early life, not even her exact date of birth. She was, after all, a woman. And though in her early years she was Duke William of Aquitaine's heir, it was assumed that a brother would appear in due course as the future duke. Due course was, however, interrupted when William suddenly fell ill 
unfairly, on a pilgrimage to Compostela. Sensing he was not long for this world, and that a girl of at most fifteen years stood little chance of holding the dukedom together if she succeeded, he quickly betrothed her to Louis the Seventh of France. Within weeks, William was dead, and the wedding took place in Bordeaux. Louis, it is a fair bet, could scarcely believe his luck, and for a king of France to wed away from Paris was certainly a rare compliment to his bride. His kingdom had grown out of the western remnants of Charlemagne's empire, in parallel to the emergence of the Holy Roman Empire to the east. There were superficial similarities. A king, elected by his peers, Francis I was Hugh Capet, elected in 987, as overlord of a far-flung network of counts and dukes. Capet's notional sovereignty extended as far south as the dukedom of Barcelona, but the development of the two entities took very different paths. As we have seen, the empire emerged as a loose, diffuse and surprisingly egalitarian polity, with the crown passing at regular intervals between different families, different regions succeeding each other as the centre of gravity, and no fixed capital. France, by contrast, seems to have had nation-statehood in its DNA from the very beginning. Paris was its first and only capital, and though its first king might have been elected, his descendants, the Capetian dynasty, occupied the throne in unbroken line for the next 340 years. From the very beginning, through to Napoleon, France's national history is thus boringly rectilinear, a process of the steady expansion of the direct, centralising grip of the king from what was initially a rather small parcel of domain lands around Paris, the so-called Ile-de-France, to what, by the time of Louis XIV, the 17th-century Sun King, were regarded as the kingdom's natural boundaries, from the Rhine to the Pyrenees. Of course, the French king's more powerful vassals prove allergic to this centralising mission and reluctant to accept more than a nominal subordination. And not even that in the case of Barcelona, which very early on transferred its allegiance to Spanish Aragon when Paris proved no help against the Moors. And dukes, such as those of Aquitaine and Burgundy, not to mention counts, such as those of Toulouse, Blois and Flanders, were scarcely more biddable, presiding as they did over fiefdoms often more powerful and prosperous than the French kingdom itself. The Duke of Normandy was a particular worry, especially after 1066, when, though still the French king's nominal vassal, he could add King of England to his ducal status. So, marriage to the heiress of Aquitaine was a triumph for King Louis. The duchy might still belong to Eleanor, but it was now his to control. For practical purposes, his realm now extended from Flanders to the Bay of Biscay. Let the Norman dukes take note. Eleanor was not, however quite the wife he may have hoped for. She bore him no children, and when he decided to embark on the Second Crusade in 1147, she came along too. Arduous road trips constrain any relationship, and by the time they reached Antioch, the gateway to Syria, a blazing row had ensued. The expedition had had a tough time on the road, weighed down, some said, by Eleanor's vast amounts of luggage. Raymond, Lord of Antioch, suggested that proceeding to Jerusalem was risky and pointless, 
and proposed instead that the crusade focus on recovering Edessa in northern Syria. It was, after all, the loss of Edessa which had prompted the crusade in the first place. Eleanor favoured this proposal. Louis did not. It may not have helped that Raymond was Eleanor's uncle, and rather dashing. The upshot was that Eleanor went home, whilst Louis pressed on to the Holy Land, where bad turned to worse, and he too had to give up the crusade as a failure. Back in Paris, Louis wasted no time in getting the Pope to annul his marriage, on the usual grounds of consanguinity. The leading families across Charlemagne's old empire were now so thoroughly intermarried that a cooperative pope could always declare an inconvenient union excessively close. Eleanor, now about 30, promptly remarried to the 19-year-old Henry Plantagenet, grandson of Henry I of England, also Duke of Normandy and Count of Anjou. Henry's mother Matilda, that's Henry I's daughter, was at this point still contesting the throne of England with her cousin Stephen, a two-decade conflict reasonably known as the Anarchy. The conflict was resolved with Stephen's death in 1154, and Henry II was crowned undisputed King of England to begin a reign of 35 years. The cards could hardly have fallen worse for Louis. Not only had he lost Aquitaine with the dissolution of his marriage, but two years later those vast and rich territories were transferred along with Eleanor, to his Anglo-Norman rival, who was additionally Lord of Anjou, the key to the Loire. Louis found himself facing a King of England whose domain stretched from Scotland to the Pyrenees, the biggest Western European empire since Charlemagne's. To add insult to injury, Eleanor, childless during a decade of marriage to Louis, now readily produced four princes for Henry. The happy couple worked as a team, she acting as his regent for the affairs of Aquitaine from her own court in Poitiers. Here she patronised the Abbey of Fontevraud, where she would ultimately retire and indeed be buried. But, as the ancient Greeks had it, call no man happy until he is dead. Henry's undoing was his own local version of the investiture conflict. A standoff with his own archbishop, Thomas Becket, all the more galling since he had been a friend of Henry who got him the job, over control of the church in England. "'Who will rid me of this turbulent priest?' the king exclaimed to a group of his barons. "'A careless expression of exasperation? "'Or an early example of a head of state aiming to get a result "'while maintaining plausible deniability?' If the latter, it did not work. "'Assassinated in his own cathedral, Becket became an instant martyr.' and two years later, a saint. Henry had to undertake humiliating penances to escape papal interdiction. The king's authority was fatally weakened, prompting his sons, backed by their mother, to urge greater delegation. They took up arms to press their point. The old man managed to hang on until his death in 1189, in the meantime placing Eleanor under house arrest. It was a sad conclusion for the golden couple. What is striking about this period of interfamilial warfare was how ready Henry's sons were to collaborate with the French king in Paris, Louis VII until 1180, his son Philip II thereafter. Indeed, Henry was campaigning against the combined forces of Philip II and his own son Richard when he died. The concept of treason simply did not apply. 
Plantagenus versus Capetians was not yet England v. France, but rather feuding between two shifting royal factions, linked by a common culture and language, as well as blood ties and feudal obligations. The French king still regarded the English king, Quay Duke of Normandy and Aquitaine, as his vassal. So it did not seem odd that Henry should be buried not in England, but in the Abbey of Fontevraud, where he would in due course be joined by Richard and finally Eleanor. It was during this period that the Third Crusade was launched, in response to Saladin's capture of Jerusalem in 1187. The top general of the Fatimid dynasty in Cairo, he had seized power and was now in process of taking over the whole Middle East. The leadership this time was the full suite of top European monarchs, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, with Philip II of France and Richard I of England, the Lionheart. Barbarossa drowned on the journey in a Turkish river, leaving the leadership to Philip and Richard. They, you may recall, had been happy to work together to do down Richard's father, Henry II. Now they made an art form of non-cooperation. Some cities were recovered, but not Jerusalem. Richard was shipwrecked on his way home and passed into the hands of the new Holy Roman Emperor, Henry VI, who extracted a ransom of 50 tons of silver before allowing him on his way. In legend, the prisoner's whereabouts were discovered by Richard's minstrel Blondel singing under the castle walls. So, after the triumphant recovery of Jerusalem by the First Crusade, the second and third were disappointments. But far worse was to come, as across the 13th century, the crusading movement fell ever further away from the noble ideals that had first inspired it. In 1204, Latin Christendom seemed ready to try for Jerusalem again when the Fourth Crusade assembled in Venice. But the Doge pointed out that Constantinople would make an easier and more lucrative target. This was true. The expedition was diverted and Constantinople stormed. The inhabitants were massacred and the city comprehensively looted. Given its status as the capital of Eastern Christendom and the Byzantine Empire since the days of Constantine, there was plenty to loot, including the four magnificent bronze horses that now adorn the façade of St Mark's in Venice. The hall of holy relics included such exotica as the head of St Philip, one of John the Baptist's teeth, and Judas's dish from the Last Supper. A Latin Empire of the Straits, i.e. Constantinople and its immediate surrounds, was declared, with Baldwin of Flanders crowned by the Venetian Patriarch in Santa Sophia. The ousted Byzantine Emperor and Patriarch established themselves in a rump state in Asia Minor. But at least the Bulgars were happy, taking the opportunity to consolidate their second empire from the Black Sea to the Aegean. Understandably termed the Great Betrayal, the seizure and sack of Constantinople rather bankrupted the crusading ideal, but sporadic further expeditions were launched across the 13th century. The sixth, led by Barbarossa's son Frederick II, even managing to negotiate renewed control of Jerusalem for a ten-year period. Since Egypt was now the Muslim world's power centre, three other crusades, numbers 5, 7 and 8, targeted North Africa, all without success. St Francis of Assisi dropped in on the Fifth Crusade, hoping to convert the Egyptian sultan to Christianity. 
he reportedly achieved an audience and a courteous reception, but no conversion. The Ninth Crusade, led by the future Edward I of England, was the last to set boot in the Holy Land, and soon afterwards, in 1291, the Mamluks, the dynasty that followed Saladin's in Cairo, captured the port of Acre, the crusaders' last toehold in the Levant. Holy War, however, had revealed itself as too useful an instrument for popes not to wield it elsewhere. The Wendish Crusade, the diversion from the Second Crusade in 1147, took Christianity at sword point to the Slavs east of the Elbe, inaugurating a series of northern crusades which over the next century and a half pushed eastward through old Prussia into the Baltic states. The spearhead of these efforts were the Teutonic Knights, whose eastward progress was eventually halted by Alexander Nevsky at the Battle of the Ice in 1242. And if against pagans, why not against heretics too? The Albigensian Crusade of 1209 to 1229 eliminated the Cathar heresy in southwest France, along with most of its adherents, and handily broke the power of the Count of Toulouse. The linguistically and culturally distinct Languedoc was now destined for absorption into the Kingdom of France. And when Aragon crossed France over the Lordship of Sicily, an obliging Pope was ready to bless the French punitive expedition as the Aragonese Crusade of 1284-85. to Thus, by the end of the 13th century, papal moral authority in matters of holy war was as threadbare as the crusading ideal itself. No wonder, looking back, that those first three crusades came to seem such chivalrous enterprises. But we have now run ahead of ourselves. So to complete this episode, I propose to turn back to the early years of the 13th century and the remarkable story of how Philip II of France, poor crusader though he proved to be, strengthened France to the point where he wiped the floor, not just with his Plantagenet rival John of England, but with the Holy Roman Emperor as well. France, we should here take note, was steadily growing in power, despite the reversal of fortune that had added Aquitaine to the empire of their Plantagenet rivals. French kings were left with little option but to concentrate on managing and expanding their own backyards, and Philip II in particular worked tirelessly to tighten his grip on the family's royal domain lands and his local vassals, and to expand French influence eastwards into Flanders. He bided his time, until the fractious Plantagenet Empire, debilitated by decades of almost constant warfare, not to mention the tax burden of Richard's enormous ransom, passed into the hands of Henry II's inept youngest son, John. Five years after John's accession in 1199, Philip had stripped him of Normandy, and there was better yet to come. In the early days of Google, you could type French military victories into the search box, click on I'm feeling lucky, and receive the response, do you mean French military defeats? Some witty programmer then supplied you with a long list of France's less glorious military moments, including, of course, such English favourites as Crécy and Agincourt. Since Calais and Bordeaux are now indisputably part of France, it seems necessary to ask whether the Anglo-Saxon historical tradition has been entirely disinterested 
in its memory of centuries of Anglo-French warfare. And a good place to start is with Bouvines, the most important battle that no one in England has ever heard of. Bouvines is in Flanders. The battle was fought in 1014. On one side was Philip II. On the other, a coalition of Holy Roman Emperor and various Flanders dukes and counts, backed by the English, all determined to cut the French monarch down to size. Typically for battles of the era, the issue was decided between some hundreds of mounted knights and a few thousand pikemen. The French prevailed, and in consequence, Philip stripped the Plantagenets of their northern French possessions, including Anjou, strengthened his grip on Flanders, and freed his hands to pursue the subjection of the Midi through the Albigensian Crusade. If there was one moment which confirmed France on its trajectory towards becoming the dominant power of Europe, this was it. The consequences for the losers were equally dramatic. Back home, and England now had to be considered home, given that his French holdings were now reduced to the southwest. King John found himself faced with a baron's revolt, which forced him into concessions, codified the following year in the Magna Carta. That deal soon fell apart. Rebellious barons offered the throne to Philip's son Louis, and by autumn 2016, when John died, parenthetically just days after cementing his reputation for haplessness by losing his treasure-laden baggage train to the incoming tide in the wash as he retreated north, the French Dauphin had been proclaimed King of England in London and ruled over the southern half of the country. This episode is seldom mentioned in the English historical tradition, and no wonder, for had not the venerable William Marshall, regent to John's young son Henry, rallied the English to expel the French the following year, the next 800 years of English history would have looked entirely different. Some counterfactuals are just too nightmarish to contemplate. The other big loser at Bouvines was the Holy Roman Emperor, a story which we shall pick up in the next episode. Before signing off today, however, it has been pointed out to me that there may now be listeners out there who are bursting to point out what I have got wrong, or offer other feedback. If so, then please do email me at nickwhitney at gmail.com. That's uh, N-I-C-K-W-I-T-N-E-Y, nickwhitney at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you.